This morning's passage in Luke chapter 12 is very similar to much of the writing of the Gospels. You see, I think about 50% of the Gospels are recorded in this way, where we have the record of a succession of events, one after the other. Boom, boom, boom. When you read some of those writings in the Gospels, you may be inclined to read them like they are the writing of the Proverbs, like they are a collection of good sayings or good stories recorded one after the other. And you see, the danger of reading the Gospels like that is that we begin to reduce the words of Jesus to a collection of good sayings, to a collection of moral exhortations. And so we may hear Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 12, And we may hear him say, do not fear, do not be anxious. And then we might expect another line like uh, uh, something from Confucius or from Yoda, the master Jedi, some good advice for us. But we don't hear, if we read it like that, we don't hear the words of a divine creator exhorting us to see our sin and his own righteousness if we reduce the passage to something that's simple. But you see, when we read a passage like this in Luke chapter 12 with a quick succession of stories or events, we have to realize that this, the way that Luke often records these events, is written with much more in the background, with much more that is going on. You see, Luke is recording this, but there's a number of conversations likely that connected one event to the other. There's a number of things that were happening in the scene and setting. There are things that prepare Jesus' disciples for this conversation. So the question we must ask as we open chapter 12 is what's going on in Luke chapter 12 that prepares His disciples for this conversation? What is the scene and the setting of the events that we read about in Luke chapter 12? Well, you see, I would describe the events of Luke chapter 12 as happening against the backdrop of threatening opposition. If you recall, at the end of chapter 11, it says that the Pharisees and the scribes, they were pressing in upon Jesus, and they were looking for a way that they might entrap Him. The strongest language yet at the end of chapter 11 concerning the scribes and the Pharisees. They're really beginning to press upon Jesus. And as we open up the 12th chapter in the first verse, we find now that there are thousands of people swarming around Jesus. That is the largest group by description of Luke that we've seen yet in the Gospel of Luke. The scene is a threatening scene. And into that scene or that setting, Jesus gathers His disciples to Himself and He begins to speak to them about their fear of man. And you see, it's an appropriate setting, isn't it? As the world is pressing in upon them, Jesus finds that it's the appropriate moment to address the fear of man, which was likely pressing in upon their hearts at this moment. That's the tie that binds these three seemingly unconnected passages or unconnected stories as Jesus exhorts His disciples. And Jesus will speak now about 
the fruits of the fear of man. Fear of man is a, is a contemporary phrase we use to describe that feeling that we have when we begin to become concerned with what other people are doing or what they think about us or how we ought to be around them. That's the fear of man. And here Jesus speaks about these three fruits of the fear of man, the fruit of hypocrisy, the fruit of worldly fears, and the fruit of anxiety. That's the three keys to these successive events. Let's begin in verse 1 with Jesus addressing hypocrisy. He begins in verse 1. He says, in the meantime, well, the passage says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another, He began to say to His disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus goes on to describe what is the nature of hypocrisy, but you see He begins by using this vivid image to describe the nature of hypocrisy. He uses the image of leavened in bread. Now, you all kind of get the idea of what leavened is. Uh, it's the contemporary uh, way that we do this is we go to the grocery store, we buy the packet of yeast, and we pour it into our dough, and it makes the bread to rise, right? We're doing this day and age, the process of leavening bread was slightly different. You added whatever you were going to add to the bread that would cultivate bacteria within it, and then you let your dough sit for like weeks. And there the bacteria would grow until it was ready to be cooked, and it would make the bread to rise. Leaven is often used in Scripture as a negative picture to describe various aspects of the nature of sin. This morning, Jesus uses it to describe the subtlety of hypocrisy. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's, it's very simple. And Jesus is saying when you look at a, a leavened dough of bread that is being prepared to be baked, it looks like a regular ball of dough, doesn't it? But only after time, when the bread is placed in the oven, do you begin to see that there's actually leaven in this bread. That, he says, is the nature of hypocrisy. It is hidden. It is subtle. Only eventually does it present itself. It's hard to perceive. And so he uses the description of the leaven of the Pharisees. As Jesus speaks about hypocrisy, he calls it in verse 3, whatever is said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in private. And you see the subtle nature then of hypocrisy. But let me ask you a question. How does hypocrisy connect to the fear of man? I said the passage is all about the fear of man. What does hypocrisy have to do with fear of man? I think it's very simple as we begin to think about what Jesus is speaking about here. We know the nature of hypocrisy, but you see, hypocrisy has to do with our words. At least that's what Jesus addresses in this passage. And what we quickly realize is that our words are perceived as us as being easily malleable and changeable. Our words can be adapted. They can be morphed. Our words can be different depending on who we're speaking to. Our words can say one thing but mean a totally different thing. You see, words to us are the beginning of hypocrisy. They are the easiest 
way of conforming to the fear of man in our lives. Words are not like actions. Actions are concrete. Actions are definitive. Actions are hard to take back. Uh, Think about this example. When the the time comes around for elections. If you take a flag and you place it in your front yard saying who you're voting for, it's a definitive action that you take and there's no question And anybody sees that flag in your front yard who you're voting for and who you're not voting for and what you support and what you don't support. But words are very different, aren't they? You see, to us, words often seem as if they can be taken back. They can be adapted. They can be tweaked or they could be changed. When fear of man controls the heart of human beings, the first defense to fall, the first wall that comes down is the wall of hypocrisy. The easiest way for us to conform our lives in a fear of man or to submit ourselves to some conformity that we think is necessary because we fear others or what they think of us is the wall that protects our words because our words are so easy to conform. This hypocrisy is the hypocrisy that Jesus addresses in this passage. This past week, I, I, had, uh, I was in St. Louis the whole week for the PCA, that's our denomination, for our General Assembly. The General Assembly is when all of the pastors and the elders who can get to St. Louis, they get together and they spend the week together and you hear lots of good sermons and you, you have worship together and then you take care of business and you vote on a lot of important issues, okay? And it was a really good General Assembly this past week. If you want to talk about that later, I'd love to talk about it. It was a terrific time. Lots of good things happened at General Assembly, but at the beginning of the week, the first day, they had a panel of pastors and professors on the stage, and they asked them this question. They said, we want to hear from each of you, what is the future of our denomination? Where are we going, and what will our church look like in 20 years? And it was a a good conversation, but I'll never forget the first pastor who spoke, he said, listen, I want to talk about the distinctives of the PCA. The, the vision statement of the PCA is that we're faithful to the Scriptures, we're true to the Reformed faith, and we are be obedient to the Great Commission. I want to talk about each of those and how they apply to our church today. And he asked a particular question about each statement. And he began with the faithfulness to the Scriptures. And he said, I want to ask you, brothers, are you in an unquestioned way, are you committed completely to faithfulness to the Scriptures? is a good question to ask, but then he said this, okay? He said, listen, I think for some time we have talked about how our faithfulness to the Scriptures would likely uh, put us in opposition to the world. That our faithfulness to the Scriptures would indeed put us in an adversarial relationship to the world. He said, but I want to tell you, I don't think that's possible. I think it is inevitable, Are you committed to the inevitableness of your faithfulness to the Scriptures putting you in opposition to the world? And he said, let me give you an example. I don't think today that you can read aloud from your pulpits from Romans chapter 1 or Romans chapter 6 and not have somebody in your community protest you or in your congregation write you an angry email afterwards, okay? This is the world you live in. Are you committed to the faithfulness to the Scriptures of God? I only share that with you because I believe that is often in our world where maybe hypocrisy begins, right? 
because as Christians, we can live committed to the faithfulness to, to Scripture, and we can see the truth of God's Word, but we can do a very different thing with our words, can't we? You see, that's what fear of man is, right? Fear of man is us trying to conform to those around us, and we use our words to try and wiggle into a place of finding a gray area where we can both satisfy the Word of God and we can satisfy those around us. That's the warning that Christ gives here concerning the nature of hypocrisy. Now, here's Jesus' answer to hypocrisy. If you're paying attention to the passage, what does Jesus say? He says, listen, the things that are spoken in the darkness, uh, they will be said aloud, and the things that are whispered will be proclaimed in public places. When Jesus says that, what is He talking about? He's talking about from the divine perspective. He's speaking about a God whose eye is always open, who is always perceiving a living God who knows the thoughts of our hearts and discerns the words of our mouths, He is the one who exposes the hypocrisy that comes from the heart but is expressed in the mouth. Jesus points us to the omniscience of God. The answer to our hypocrisy is God's omniscience. Now you see, Jesus says this for at least two reasons. It's both a warning and a promise, right? It's a warning to us, and the, the warning is very simple. As we speak, we must recognize that we have an audience with God. We could consider that our primary audience. And so as I speak to you, it is God who perceives my words. As you speak to your children, it is God who is perceiving the things you say. As you speak to your neighbors, as you speak in your workplace, as you're tempted by fear of man to contort your words uh, for the sake of a lack of awkwardness or for your own well-being, it is God who perceives. And the warning for those who are in Christ is that your words would be in line with the truth, that your yes would be your yes and your no be your no. But it's also a promise, and it functions in that way in this passage, right? Because Jesus is not telling His disciples, listen, you failed at this. He's speaking about the Pharisees to them. The Pharisees who, at this point, inevitably had begun to put pressure upon the followers of Jesus, and He's saying to His disciples, listen, the Pharisees whose hypocrisy is obvious, they will be exposed. The things they've said in the darkness will be brought to light will be proclaimed in public places. It is a promise that the Lord God will vindicate His own followers, exposing the hypocrisy of the world, making it to be reconciled before His throne. And so that's how Christ deals here with the hypocrisy that is mentioned in this text. The second thing that Christ brings to the forefront here uh, is the worldly fears that must be dealt with, the worldly fears. This passage, if, if this whole passage was a movie, I said it, there's an intensity here that begins in verse 1. If you imagine this was a movie, the beginning of chapter 12, the drum beat would be beginning to pick up, right? And the drums would be getting louder and the horns would be crescendoing. And if that was true in verse 1, then verse 4 is the moment when things are really beginning to become energized and elevated. Because verse 4 is a very serious moment. In verse 4, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. 
Could you imagine Jesus saying that to his disciples? Do not fear those who can kill the body. And they're probably thinking, what are you talking about, Jesus? Are you serious? Do not fear those who can kill the body, but then afterwards can do nothing more. What more is there? Right? Especially for the Sadducees. What more is there? Jesus begins to frame this conversation for his disciples, and he asks a very provocative question, which will lead into his handling of this the worldly fears of man. And let me tell you what Jesus is beginning to do with his disciples. Here's what he's doing, okay? It's like he's the director of a movie, and he is taking his disciples, and he begins in a place with a very narrow lens, okay, a narrow lens. He's zoomed in on a very small, specific moment. And he says, listen, that's, that is you and your life, okay? It's in the narrow lens. It's very small. Do not fear those who in this narrow lens can take away the body. After that, have no power to do anything. Jesus is taking his disciples and he's saying, okay, let's widen the lens a little bit. And he's zooming out. And you can imagine like, like a, a movie director would do. He's zooming out. And the moment or the event that he's just spoken about, this one moment that seems so big in the vision of his disciples is becoming smaller and smaller as they get a, a grander perspective of eternity. That's what Jesus is beginning to do. You see, the, the wide angle that Jesus wants to emphasize with His disciples is what He begins to speak about in verse 5. He says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear Him who after He has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. You, you see what Jesus is saying, right? Right? He's saying, listen, I know you're concerned with this world and the things that you'll wear and, and what you're going to say or do tomorrow or how your health is going to be. But this life, it's maybe 100 years. And that's if you exercise and uh, you, you take your vitamins, don't eat red meat, okay? Maybe. And Jesus is saying, listen, it's small. If you could get a perspective for eternity, you would begin to see that the wide lens of eternity would, would engulf the things that seem so big to you now, would diminish them, they would pass away, that you would have no care or concern for these things, so much so that you would say, okay, they could take away the body, big deal. What does that matter when I've got this great grand picture of eternity? Jesus begins to give His followers a perspective of eternity by giving them a fear of God. A fear of God. The fear of man is diminished with a healthy fear of God. Brothers and sisters, I have a question. Do you fear God? A very simple question. Maybe it's a simple answer. Do you fear God? One author a Puritan author who was writing on this passage, uh, he, he said this, Christ's words are designed that you may fear man less and fear God more. Moses conquers his fear of the wrath of the king, a fear of man, by having an eye to him that is invisible. By owning Christ, you may incur the wrath of men which can reach no further than to put you to death. 
And without God's permission, they can't even do that. But, but by denying Christ and disowning Him, you will incur the wrath of God, which has the power to send you to hell, and there is no resisting that power. You see, the argument here is very simple. There are two fears. Let's compare them. Let's make a pros and a cons list, okay? There is the fear of man, and there is the fear of God. And Jesus is saying, as you begin to compare them, there is no comparison. One is for a time, and it's a little bitty time. One is for eternity. One has the power to destroy the body. The other has the power over your soul in eternity. For everlasting splendor or everlasting horror. One is here and gone. It is fleeting and passing. One is from eternity past and it extends into eternity future. You see, Jesus is saying, as you compare these things, there's no question. What do you choose? I I choose the greater. And I will be fine to deal with the lesser fear. Do not fear those who can kill the body and thereafter have no power Fear Him who has the power to cast your soul into hell. You see, as we think about this passage, listen, we have, we have these propensities or we have problems uh, that are unique to us within the American church, and this, you would have to say, is one of them, right? We make a really big deal about the human body and this world and the things that concern us in this world. We tend to overemphasize those things and we diminish eternity. That is our propensity, and to to us, Jesus says, do not fear those things. Those things, if you get the proper perspective, are, are nothing. They are passing away. Now listen, if you're thinking, okay, well this is kind of like a morbid discussion, it makes me a little depressed to think, okay, do I, do I fear more the person who kills the body or the person who kills the soul? What kind of hope is there in that? Jesus makes this beautiful quick transition to verses 6 and 7, okay? So 5 is about the fear of God, and He moves us to verse 6 and 7, which is about the love of God for us. And if you're thinking how beautiful this is, listen, this is the this is the trajectory every Sunday morning. We move through confession after we, we declare the praises of God and we invoke His presence. We move through confession and we get to a moment where we say, well, this is terrible. What hope is there? And then through the assurance of pardon to the preaching of God's Word, we say, thank you, Lord God, for moving us out of our mire and muck in the depression of the, 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 the truthfulness of sin and the judgment of God to the salvation which we have in Christ Jesus. And in verse 6, Jesus says to them, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. It's the love of God. I have to tell you something funny that will maybe help you remember this passage. Um, uh, my daughter this past year decided that she was going to make a, uh, a picture a diagram or a picture book of the entire Gospel of Luke, okay? And she gave that to me for my birthday. So we've got pages and pages of these drawings that explain every passage in Luke. And when you get to chapter 12, the drawing, every time I look at it, it makes me laugh, okay? The drawing in chapter 12 is three men. They're standing side by side by side. 
the one man has a kind of a uh, medium head of hair, and it has a number above his head, and that's the number of hairs on his head. It was like 12,000 and something, okay? And then there's a person who's got this full head of hair, and they've got like 14,000 hairs. That's how many hairs are on their head. And then the third guy is bald. And, and, and above it, it says zero. God didn't have to work very hard on that guy to number his, the, the hairs on his head. I think about it, it recalls my attention back to the beauty of this passage. Jesus says, listen, five sparrows, they're sold for two pennies. They're dirt cheap. Uh, he has numbered the hairs on your head. Aren't you not more infinitely valuable than sparrows? And the word, the word valuable in this passage, okay, the word valuable is the Greek word diaphero. Diaphero. Dia, which means through. Pharaoh, which means to carry. It literally means to carry through, and the word means carrying on, long-lasting, never diminishing. The actual passage says, are you not of more long-lasting value than even the sparrows of the field? You see what Jesus is saying? Yes, the fear of God is so important. Yes, He may cast your soul into hell. He has authority over eternity. But aren't you more of long-lasting value than the sparrows? Hasn't He numbered the hairs on your head? And doesn't He care so deeply for you? He who did not send His own Son, He who sent His own Son, how will He not with Him also give us all things graciously? The beauty of the gospel is that the Lord God has loved us and sent His Son that we might be redeemed. So the, the beauty of the gospel is even here in this passage. Finally, verses 11 through 12, we see Jesus addressing anxiety. In verse 11, He says, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or, or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now listen, could, could you imagine hearing all of this from Jesus, okay? He says, don't fear those who will kill the body. And now He tells them, listen, when, when you appear before the authorities and you must give account, do not be anxious. And you know, these are things that Christ has subtly referred to through the Gospel of Luke. But we, you know, please don't forget that up until this point, no one really has been persecuted for being a follower of Christ. There's been some intense moments, but the persecution has not yet come. And these disciples are here with Jesus, some of them, you know, His 12 disciples, faithful followers, some of them are maybe more lukewarm or they're kind of new to who Jesus is. And as He speaks to them, you have to imagine they were kind of like, wait a second, what did you say? Uh, go again? Jesus says, when, right? Not if. When you appear before the authorities, when you are brought before them, when you are put on trial, do not be anxious. And if you want to try and envision what that would be like, let me just tell you, it'd be like your pastor standing up here this morning and saying, listen guys, I know you've experienced this great life of freedom. This is July 4th weekend, so we could talk about freedom. 
free Americans who could gather every Sunday to worship the Lord God. I know that's been your experience throughout your entire lives, but listen, when they throw you in prison because of Jesus, do not be anxious. And you'd be like, what, Pastor? What do you mean, when? You know something I don't know? Okay? And it, it doesn't even require Christ's divinity to understand that the writing is kind of on the wall for the disciples, okay? You can see how these things are going. You can see where this is leading. And Jesus says to them, when this happens, okay, when they destroy the body, when they drag you before the rulers, when this happens, do not be anxious. Do you know what anxiety is? My favorite definition of anxiety is very simple. Anxiety is being concerned with. Being concerned with in the present potential future realities. Okay? It's being concerned with. And maybe, maybe concern is a light word. It's being wrapped up in. It's being spun up over. It is, it is being uh, captivated with. Uh, your whole life revolving around potential future realities, okay? And, you know, listen, there's all kinds of different future potential realities, right? There are good future potential realities or bad future potential realities. Anxiety is being concerned with the negative ones, okay? It's being concerned with what might come to pass. That's what anxiety is. And here Jesus says, do not be anxious. Now, the question is, how can Jesus say to these disciples, do not be anxious? You see, because the answer to anxiety in the world is something to the effect of, you know, don't worry, be happy, everything's going to work out. Kuna matata. Means no worries, right? And the the worldly version of that is, listen, I can't tell you how, but things are going to work out. You just got to trust they're going to work out. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard. It's kind of similar to when in the world, because they can't pray for one another, they say, listen, I'm, we're sending good thoughts. And I always think when somebody says that to me, well, I, don't, I don't care about your good thoughts. They don't help me right now, okay? Your good thoughts are very unhelpful in this moment. That's the, the, the world's answer. Now listen, here's the kind of typical pseudo-Christian answer. It's just as bad, maybe a little bit better. And that is to say, listen, God's going to give us good things, Okay? Uh, I'm not going to be anxious because I know that God wouldn't allow, and then you fill in the blank, right? Just fill in the blank. God wouldn't allow me to die early. He wouldn't allow me to lose my job. He wouldn't allow me to go bankrupt. He wouldn't allow, whatever the case is, right? And we kind of avoid anxiety by putting it into that place. Okay, but that's, that's not true. We know it's not true because all of us have either experienced it or we we know people who have experienced it, right? We know faithful Christians uh, who have been joined by faith in Christ. Uh, The grace of God is being worked out in their lives and they experience great tragedy. We know that. We know because we read the magazines about persecuted Christians around the world that we know for the most part that Christians around the world are suffering because of their faith. We know that's the case. So we know that it is just not true that all of life is going to be good and easy and, uh, and, and that we're going to have no challenges, okay? So how can Jesus say to his disciples, do not be anxious? What, 
what reason does he give them? Well, I think that reason is in verses 8 and 9. He says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. See, as Jesus speaks here about anxiety, His answer is in the acknowledgement of the Son before the throne of God. And let me tell you something. I think acknowledgement in this passage, to acknowledge is probably a pretty bad translation, okay? When I think about acknowledging, you know what I think about? I think about the cowboy who tips his hat to the woman who's crossing the road. He's acknowledging her. I think about, you know, when I used to ride motorcycles, when you ride a motorcycle and you see another person riding a motorcycle, do you know what you do? You put your hand down. That's how you wave to a motorcycle rider, okay? I found out the hard way. When I first got a motorcycle, I'm riding by and doing this, and people are looking at me like I'm crazy, okay? This is how you you wave to a motorcycle, another motorcycle. That's acknowledging. When I read this passage and I think acknowledging, it seems like Jesus is kind of tipping his hat. Okay, I see you. I see you followers of Jesus. Thank you. Tipping my hat, okay? That's not what's happening in this passage. It's not what's being described here. The Greek word is homo lego. Homo lego, which means the same to speak. Speaking the same. Okay, the actual word means to speak for, to speak on behalf of, to endorse, to affirm. It's like when a king says, listen, I'm not going to talk, but my representative, they're going to talk for me. What Jesus is saying is if you speak before men, if you affirm me, that is being joined by faith, professing the Lord Jesus Christ, if you endorse me before men, I endorse you before the Father. I affirm you before the throne of God. I stand behind you as my own before the God of the universe. And you know what what that means for anxiety? It's very simple, okay? Anxiety, right, is being focused on the, the, the very narrow lens of tomorrow. My anxiety is, a, is I'm being worked up inside about what tomorrow might hold. And, and Jesus is saying to his followers, listen, tomorrow and tomorrow and like, let's say 5,000 tomorrows, they're right there. But let me show you something. Take a step back. Take a step back and recognize that I endorse you before the throne of the Father. And though the tomorrow's right here for a second might be hard, or they might be awkward, or they might be filled with suffering or persecution, or they might involve the the killing of the body. They're small. And I tell you the truth that before the face of eternity, there are a million, billion, infinite amount of tomorrows that have been secured for you. Before the throne of God, I have endorsed and affirmed you. And it means for an infinite amount of tomorrows, there's no question of where you'll be or what you'll do or how good it will be or whether there will be trials and challenges. For an infinite amount of tomorrows, you have been secured. And I have affirmed you before the Father. And so do not be anxious about these few tomorrows. Do not be anxious about what tomorrow may hold. For he who acknowledges me before men, 
I will acknowledge before the throne of God. And we have been made secure. You see, the, the blood of Christ Jesus has been stamped upon us. That's what we get to celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We take the bread, we drink the wine, and the Spirit of God works in our hearts to affirm the reality of the blood of Christ which has been stamped upon every believer. It has covered the follower of Christ, and now before the throne, He stands behind us. And He says to the Father, I vouch for this one. I vouch for this one. He is mine. Brothers and sisters, if we comprehend what Christ is saying in this passage, do you realize how freeing this reality can be? How freeing it is. Christ speaks to our hypocrisy, our worldly fears, our anxieties. And He shows us that by getting a grand perspective of His work, He shows us how by the power of God, the fear of man might be quenched, might be diminished for the glory of God, through the Son of God, these things might be accomplished. Would you please join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son, Christ Jesus, and we thank you that he came to do so many things to, to teach us and to encourage us and to rebuke us and to show us sin, but he came most importantly to suffer upon the cross for our sin to be raised in new life, to conquer death and the grave and sin and Satan, to give to us new life. And so God, our Father, we ask that you would show us, that you would show us eternity, that you would show us our future glory, that you would show us in our hearts something small of what it means to be in your presence. And that, dear Father, we would live in light of that. That we would not fear the things of this world, but we would fear you. And as we fear you, we would glorify you. And we would praise you. And we would rest in the peace that has been purchased by Christ Jesus. We thank you. And we praise you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.